This is an ABC podcast. Maloni, Maloelei, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. I'm your host, Aggie Tupol, and as always, would like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. And also, did you know it's leap year this year? And today is the 29th of February. It only happens every four years, so if it's your birthday today... Special happy birthday to you today. On the show, we've got new PM for Tuvalu, but where to now with the Falipili Union? And the Great Council of Chiefs have a new chair, but where is the woman representation? And a Pacific Science Academy aims to decolonise scientific research in the region. More on these stories shortly. I'm Aki Tupou and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, Tuvalu's new government has signalled it will seek revisions to a landmark treaty signed with the Australian government. It comes after the new Prime Minister, Felicitio, was sworn into office yesterday morning. So for more on that, we're joined by our ABC reporter, Marion Favre. Did I say good morning, Marion? Good morning, Yagi. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this morning. Well, what has the new Tuvaluan government said about this Falipili uh, union? Well, yes. So, Aggie, this is the agreement that Tuvalu struck with um, Australia last year in November, and it covers a lot of things. But perhaps most interestingly, um, it gives Australia effective veto power over Tuvalu's security arrangements with other countries uh, in exchange for greater migration pathways for Tuvaluan citizens to Australia. Um, Now, the new uh, Tuvaluan government was sworn in yesterday and it released a statement saying that uh, Tuvalu broadly supports the deal, uh, but it has acknowledged uh, what it calls the absence of transparency and um, consultations in socialising and informing of the, the public of Tuvalu of the initiative. That's a that's a quote from the statement. Um, so that's an acknowledgement that for some people in Tuvalu, the deal seemingly came out of the blue and there wasn't a lot of public discussion about it beforehand. And then the statement goes on to say that uh, the government... Um, Uh, has signalled it will seek a workable arrangement with Australia that advances the special, uh, sorry, advances the objectives of the special union in particular, safeguarding the integrity of the sovereignty of Tuvalu. So that's a pretty strong indication there that the Tuvaluan government will seek some revisions to these agreements, uh, to this agreement, likely around those veto powers um, that I mentioned earlier. Yeah, Marin, does this come as a surprise though? Well, yes and no. Um, so, Felitti Teo was part of the eminent persons panel that was involved in crafting this agreement with Australia. So, he was closely involved in the negotiations and some might think it is a bit surprising that he'd be then seeking to rework it. But on the other hand, um, aspects of uh, this deal have been um, widely criticised for giving Australia powers that are too far-reaching and those criticisms um, have come from both the public and within the government. And the broad feeling among 
MPs in Tuvalu is that it did need to be reworked, uh, this deal. So it's not entirely surprising. Um, it is a bit of a blow for Australia. This is um, Australia's signature foreign policy initiative in the Pacific. Um, but uh, it's worth mentioning that both countries still need to pass uh, legislation to give force to this agreement. Um, it looks like that, that that will happen, but it might not be as straightforward as Australia potentially hoped. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, obviously there needs to be a bit more consultation, which is what the people of Tuvalu want. Um, so I'm wondering, how has Australia responded to this whole thing? Well, uh, Minister for um, Minister for the, Australia's Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, uh, spoke with the ABC yesterday. He appears to have taken what some might regard as a fairly optimistic position on what Tuvalu has said about the treaty. He dwelled mostly on the fact that Tuvalu um, has broadly indicated its support for the deal. Um, but crucially, he did signal that Australia is open to negotiation around the implementation of the treaty. So let's take a listen. I don't think there is a sticking point on sovereignty. We're talking about how we implement the treaty rather than anything else. But we've been very clear in both our public utterances and our private utterances that, of course, we respect the priorities of the government of Tuvalu and we'll work with them if they need, to, if they want to work on um, particular variations on what's been agreed to. We do that with every Pacific country. Uh, and that was Minister for the Pacific, Pat Conroy, speaking with ABC there. Uh, now, Marion, the Tuvalu government, uh, they've released a 21-point document outlining its priorities. Uh, do you mind if you can possibly give us a brief overview of what they are? Yeah, well, in fact, this point about the Falapilli Union was point 21 on that document. So the Tuvaluan government is there, is sending a message, a very clear message, that uh, domestic issues definitely come first, and this sort of um, major foreign policy item was right down the bottom of the list. Um, at the top of the list, um, perhaps unsurprisingly, is climate change. And Faletti Teo, um, in his speech yesterday, his first public address to the nation as Prime Minister, said that climate change is the single biggest threat to his country and its people and um, dwelled on that at length. Um, there's also uh, quite a number of other um, items that they're flagging as priorities, such as urgent measures to deal with the impact of king tides, which, of course, um, uh, prevented a number of MPs from coming or making it to the capital of um, Tuvalu and Futafuti um, to, to actually vote in their prime minister and um, and cabinet. So um, that that's definitely an issue that's come um, that's being um, prioritised by the new government. Other things like addressing issues within the shipping industry and improving digital connectivity, internet speeds, and that sort of thing. So um, these are the issues that are really front of mind, and definitely. Um, a, a very strong focus on domestic issues. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Marin, what about uh, Tuvalu's relationship with Taiwan, which, you know, we understand has been the subject of some speculation lately, hasn't it? Yes, that's right. And this was particularly after uh, Nauru suddenly severed its ties with Taiwan last year. And around that time, there were calls for Tuvalu to also review its relationship with Taipei. 
But yesterday, um, the Tuvaluan government emphatically reaffirmed its relationship with Taiwan, um, calling it or referring to it as a long-term and lasting special relationship. And indeed, the um, uh, the incumbent uh, president of Taiwan and the president-elect of Taiwan both sent congratulatory messages to uh, the new Tuvaluan government, and those were read out in the oath-swearing ceremony yesterday. So uh, that will certainly be good news to Taipei, um, and I think uh, it's probably unlikely that we'll see a review or a breakdown of that relationship uh, anytime soon, at least. Mm. Look, Marion, thank you very much for just giving us a little bit of insight into that, uh, what's been happening in Tuvalu. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Aggie. No worries. That, of course, is our ABC reporter there, Marion Farr. Want to immerse yourself in sport and stories of athletes from across the Pacific? Well, join me, Bobby McCumber, alongside some of the most talented journalists and sports commentators from across the region for Fresh Off the Field. Each week, we'll bring you interviews with Pacific athletes leaving their mark on the international stage and those aspiring to do the same. From cricket to netball, athletics to rugby and everything in between. Fresh Off the Field, Thursday afternoon at 4 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Now, tomorrow will mark 70 years since the US government exploded a thermonuclear weapon on Bikini Atoll in the Marshall Islands. The bomb was a thousand times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima in World War II and was one of 67 nuclear tests carried out by the US between 1946 and 1958. Ceremonies will be held in the Marshall Islands to mark the anniversary. And among those attending is correspondent for Islands Business Magazine, Nick McLennan with that. Uh, welcome to the show this morning. Good morning, Aggie. Thank you very much, Nick, for joining us. Hey, you're, you're on the ground in Maduro now. Can you maybe describe what the atmosphere is like ahead of the anniversary there of the nuclear tests? Look, people are very busy with daily life, but this is a really important anniversary. Um, many of the direct participants in uh, um, the events of 1954 have uh, died or are very elderly, and yet the nuclear legacies, the health environmental legacies of the uh, nuclear testing program back in the 1940s and 1950s are still affecting the country. And one of the noticeable things that's happened this week is a whole range of activities from younger Marshallese, um, including art exhibitions um, yesterday, I attended a, a, a storytelling session organised by the uh, Nuclear Club, which is a student association at the College of the Marshall Islands. And young people um, uh, spoke about what uh, the nuclear tests had meant for their grandparents, their parents, and what their fears and concerns were about the remaining nuclear legacies. And students zoomed in from... Uh, uh, the Marshall Islands Students Association at the University of South Pacific in Fiji, um, from the Micronesian Educational in Initiative, which is a, a young people's initiative in Arkansas, where there's a large Marshallese population. Um, the tests were 70 years ago, but the, the legacies and the concerns remain for a younger generation. Absolutely, and, and we will get into that, Nick, but I'm wondering, for those who are not too familiar, can you maybe just talk a little bit about why the Bravo test stood out amongst you know the 66 other nuclear tests that were carried out in the 40s and 50s? The United States began um, its 
atmospheric nuclear testing in 1946 with atomic weapons, but they began to develop more powerful thermonuclear weapons, often called hydrogen bombs or H-bombs, and the first of those was the Ivy Mike test in 1952. Um, but the Bravo test was a, a significant development. It was a, a much more concentrated nuclear weapon, and at the time it was the largest human-made explosion in human history. Um, as you mentioned before, the, the test was enormous, much more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, and it spread radiation over a large part of the country, um, particularly atolls in the north of the Marshall Islands, uh, like Rongalap, um, uh, Uttarik, uh, uh, Rongarik and others, were affected directly by the plume of radioactive fallout that spread from this massive nuclear explosion. But uh, documents released in the 1990s um, by the US government that had been frankly hidden for 40 years revealed that the US knew at the time that not just those northern atolls, but virtually every atoll in the Marshall Islands had been affected by different levels of ionizing radiation. And, uh, you know, that's been a, a long-standing concern as the Marshall Islands moved to self-government in 1986. Um, part of the agreement that they signed with the US, the Compact of Free Association, included some funding um, for uh, uh, compensation and addressing the health and environmental impacts. But that sum of $150 million in those days was nowhere near enough to deal with all of the consequences that continue to this day. And you spoke there, Nick, about, you know, the radiation exposure, even subsequent displacement. So what were the actual impacts that the blast had on the people in Marshall, Marshall Islands? Well, some years ago, I interviewed survivors um, of the, the Bravo test from Rongalap. Um, uh, Mrs. Lemuel Arbon, who's since passed away, sadly, uh, Rinoch Riplon. And Rinoch told me about how, as kids, uh, young girls on, on Rongalap, um, they'd never seen um, radioactive fallout before. They thought it was soap flakes, and uh, she described rubbing it into her hair. And the US government at the time knew this was a problem. Um, I've found archival documents that are, are now publicly available that talked about how the, uh, the joint military command that ran the Bravo operation um, recognised that, you know, the coconut oil that women used in their hair would capture radioactivity and that the women particularly were at greater um, uh, danger. And that sort of, uh, you know, effect on particularly women and young people um, has been seen through problems with reproductive health over many years um, for an older generation of Marshallese. But even today, there's enormous concern about uh, radioactive legacies. In the 1970s, the US government dumped enormous amounts of contaminated materials from soil to equipment and so on into a bomb crater on Eniwetok Atoll and covered it in a concrete dome. That's on Runit Island. And the Runit Dome, today, people are worried that it may leach radioactive isotopes into the marine environment. So in the Marshall Islands National Adaptation Plan, in a recent um, climate security risk assessment published with the United Nations uh, and the Marshall Islands government, they highlight this connection between the current existential threat of climate change and sea level rise with the legacies of this period some, you know, 60 and 70 years ago. And they very much see the nexus between climate, nuclear and displacement 
you know, I met a young man yesterday uh, who said he was from Bikini, and yet when I talked to him, I realised his family was from Bikini, but his grandparents and parents had lived in exile since the testing era. Um, he still identified as a Bikinian, but had lived in Majuro all his life. And that problem for uprooted peoples from the nuclear era has very scary echoes of what faces people now with potential displacement because of the adverse effects of climate change, with sea level rise, with storm surges, with cyclones and so on. And people all around the Pacific understand that this issue about how do you retain ties to your homeland when you're displaced, whether by nuclear legacies or whether by the contemporary challenge of climate change. Yeah, that definitely is a challenge. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, if you're just tuning in to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia, I'm chatting with correspondent for Islands Business Magazine correspondent Nick McLennan, uh, who was on the ground in Madura for this 70th anniversary of the Bravo nuclear test. Uh, Nick, I do want to ask, um, I understand March the 1st is a public holiday. Uh, what kind of ceremonies will be held tomorrow? I mean, do you think that will differ to years past? In many years, they've had uh, opportunities for young people to um, to come together and learn about this. Um, there's a march scheduled um, from uh, local elementary and high schools uh, where young people will, will march through um, um, downtown parts of downtown Majuro, the capital of Marshall Islands. Um, President Hilda Heine, uh, who's just begun a, a second term of office as president of the Marshall Islands, will address uh, a formal ceremony and um, talk to younger people and older about, uh, you know, the, the historic legacies, but also the challenges of today. I had the opportunity to interview President Heine yesterday, and she said that the 70th anniversary was really important because it comes at a time that the Marshall Islands faces a whole range of challenges. One of the biggest is that the um, uh, previous government under uh, President uh, Kabua signed an agreement, um, a revised Compact of Free Association, this uh, political agreement, framework agreement with the United States. Um, but the funding for that hasn't been provided by the US Congress. Um, the fiscal year started on the 1st of October and President Heinrich told me there was a rush to, um, to get the compact signed before the beginning of this fiscal year. And yet here we are months later and the dysfunction of the US Congress means that... Um, um president is anxious about all the things that need government to do, paying nurses, teachers, uh, welfare costs and so on. Um, so the relationship with the US that's been fraught over nuclear issues is also fraught in the current geopolitical contest between the United States and China. Yeah, which of course, I mean, have you detected much angst then really around that from Marshallese leaders? Well, President Heine said that she she had faith that the US would finally deliver, but it's a serious problem. There's a continuing resolution that allows the Marshals to tap into its own trust fund um, to pay teachers and pay the bills. Um, but if the US Congress is, is unable to get its act together, um, how long will they have to draw on money that's been accumulated by the government, um, whereas they're expecting under the compact um, but all three compact states, Marshall Islands, Federated States and Micronesia, have been pledged $7 billion over 20 years. Um, given the size of the US budget, that's money down the back of the couch. 
um, compared to what they spend on the Pentagon, what they spend on military activities in Guam and Hawaii and so on. And yet the U.S., despite the strategic interest of their relationship with the Micronesian states, is in a mess. And it's a presidential election year, and um, I think Marshallese leaders are concerned that the focus on domestic politics in the United States will distract from their commitments made to Micronesian nations. Yeah, absolutely. Nick, you had penned an article where you quoted one of the commissioners of the country, uh, country's National Nuclear Commission, Ariana Tibon-Kilmer, as saying that, yes, this year's anniversary is very important, especially for the younger Marshallese. Can you maybe share again why that is? And are there other initiatives in place to really engage the young people? Look, young people in the Marshall Islands, like everywhere, have their own daily concerns about, you know, schooling, about getting a good education, the possibility of a job, personal relationships, sex, drugs and rock and roll, all the things that interest young people. Um, and in many, for many years, there wasn't really a good understanding about what happened. It was 70 years ago, the Bravo test. Um, it was very moving to hear students from the, the College of the Marshall Islands talk about how their grandparents um, talked about what they went through during the 1940s and 50s, um, the health problems that they faced. And I think, you know, sometimes young people were divorced from that reality. The education system set up by the Americans obviously didn't talk about this question in ways that addressed concerns of Marshallese people. And it's only recently that the education department has worked with the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, the SPC, to develop modules that can be used by elementary and secondary schools to talk about the the nuclear history and, the, frankly, the history of colonisation of the Micronesian states um, under a US administration, the Trust Territory of the Pacific Island period. So, um, look, young people are, are concerned about their own priorities, but it was really inspiring to see the interaction. There's a delegation of Japanese university students here um, over, over a couple of weeks, and they participated in this meeting. So that peer-to-peer sharing about their concerns. So they talked about Bravo, but they also talked about the um, um, ocean dumping of treated wastewater from the Fukushima nuclear reactor, um, which is a, a great concern for people not only in Japan, but across the Pacific. So I think, um, you know, the it's not center, central to people's lives, and yet there's this underlying concern that uh, the younger generation are inheriting the problems of the 20th century. And when you think about Fukushima, when you think about Australia buying nuclear submarines from the United States, when you think about uh, contemporary build-up of nuclear arsenals, um, Marshallese, like many other people around the region, make the connection between the existential threat of nuclear weapons and uh, the threat of climate change. And they draw that nexus in government policies like uh, the National Adaptation Plan, the Climate Risk Assessment, and so on. Mm. It has been so fascinating to listen to you this morning, Nick. Really appreciate the updates and what has been happening there, of course, on Bikini Atoll. I just appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much for hosting me. No worries. That, of course, is Island Business Magazine correspondent Nick McLennan here on Pacific Beat. You're listening to Pacific Beat. On ABC Radio Australia.
Well, Fiji's Great Council of Chiefs has selected a new leader, one year on after the traditional body was reinstated. Ratu Viriame Seru Vangula, the Turanga Sao from day level, was elected chair of the GCC after winning close to half the votes of members. The former United Nations administrator says it's time to make changes to the chiefly body to better represent a diverse and modern Fiji. I joined, first joined the Bosibonu uh, of the level and after having been, no, having been nominated into the provincial council in uh, December, uh, November last year, uh, following my res- retirement from working in the United Nations for 18 years. Uh, today, uh, I was appointed as the chairman, uh, chairperson for the GCC. Uh, I find it as a very challenging Role. I do look forward uh, to the task. Uh, the uh, for the uh, we had the first item of the agenda this afternoon. We went through the minutes of the last meeting. We discussed the uh, the laws for the meeting on the Bosilevo uh, Turan. Uh, we didn't really quite finish that because there's an item in that meeting that needs further legal uh, discussion before we come back tomorrow morning. And then we will present it to the uh, to the meeting, uh, to the members of the Great Council of Chiefs. Yeah, look, um, we've had uh, 15 years since the last uh, GCC. I mean, you know, when the GCC came to a close or was uh, stopped by the in the previous government, uh, time has changed. A lot has changed since then. Uh, we've now come to this point where, and uh, looking at the work of the review, it's quite obvious that for the last 15 years. Uh, people have become more aware uh, in looking, uh, perhaps in looking for something to help them, guide them forward, uh, especially the youth, the, uh, the youth of today. Uh, and the, the chiefs, members of the Great Council of Chiefs are fully aware of that. So going forward from here on, we will uh, need to, to take that into account. And uh, one, of the re- one of the ways of doing that is to... Uh, we've discussed it uh, to some degree, and that is to not separate, but to realign the the uh, the Toke Ministry of the Toke today, so that we can move the GCC as a, if you like, a, a type of a statutory body with its own machinery, own mechanism, because we cannot go forward having with the GCC linked with uh, with the, uh, with the ministry. As, uh, for that to go forward, in, uh, we need to be, uh, you know, to separate it from poli- PA political, and the only way to do that is to move the two apart. And uh, there, of course, there's still a lot of work to be done on that, uh, and we're looking forward to the challenge ahead. The GCC is not just for the Itauke; it, uh, it does champions. It is the voice of the Itauke to the government, uh, as was the 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 way the chiefs uh, in the first founding of the GCC, they found the GCC to be the voice of the Toke to the government. Uh, but that does, we, we discussed it today that uh, the, uh, the GCC is not, it has a responsibility to take uh, into account the interests of all citizens of Fiji, including those who may not be Toke but have come to call Fiji their home. 
And that's Chair of the GCC, Viliame Seramvangula. One of the most noticeable things about the GCC this year has been the lack of women representation. But former Senator and Cabinet Minister Andifi Naldabangoro told ABC's Lede Movono that the current situation reflects the absence of women leaders at a community level. The, uh, the election process, it was an election, was very transparent. Yeah. Ma'am, you've been a, um, a woman leader in Fiji in various roles for a long time. Do you see uh, a chance in the future where the GCC will have more women? Should be because they're now looking at the laws. Can you, can you tell us about uh, what do you mean by that they're now looking at the laws? Well, the government is having a good look at CEDO and making sure that the provisions of of CEDO are implemented. And, you know, the requirement of CEDO is that women should be included in all spheres of decision-making. How soon into the future do you think uh, that implementation will take place and there will be more women on the GCC? You know, it was never like anything that people fighting for I remember in the 80s uh, there were lots of women in the GCC So why do you think uh, there's less considerably less now? Because women are not pushing themselves into areas where they could be contributing In those days women were coming in from the provinces not just from the national bodies but from the provinces and there were a a few more there were not that many but definitely a few more than than now A message for women in the provinces, for women who have that opportunity in the provinces but maybe are not taking uh, up Complaining about not being part of decision making, go out there and be part of it and that is Andifi Naldabakandoro speaking there to ABC's Lede Movono at the Great Council of Chiefs meeting in Pacific Harbour. Up next, it's News Wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. Thanks for joining us. It is that time where we head around the region. What is the latest? It's brought to you by our producer, Mackenzie Smith, with our news wrap. Uh, good morning, Mackenzie. Morning, Aggie. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Of course, thousands of Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers, uh, they're stuck in Port Vila. What's happened there? Yeah, so the Vanuatu Daily Post reports that more than 2,000 Ni Vanuatu bound for New Zealand farms have been unable to find connecting flights there. Uh, after much of this group was flown into Port Vila from the outer islands in, in preparation for that. The Vanuatu opposition is now calling on the government to approach Air New Zealand and Jetstar to help expedite flights for those workers. The opposition says uh, the workers are spending significant amounts of money while in Port Vila and are obviously unable to earn any income uh, from their jobs in New Zealand. They say they have also received reports that New Zealand farmers are frustrated and that further delays could lead to job losses for the workers. 
Vanuatu uh, makes up the largest proportion of seasonal worker recruits in New Zealand. Mm, that'd be very frustrating for the workers. Hopefully they get sorted sooner than later. Uh, Mackenzie, the Marshall Islands president, uh, Hilda Hine, has criticised the US over funding delays. What has she said? Yeah, um, we, we heard a bit uh, from Nick earlier on this, uh, but uh, Hilda Heine has told the uh, Guardian that her country's relations with the US are gradually being destroyed by party politics as the US Congress continues to delay approval for funding the Compact of Free Association Agreements. So those agreements guarantee economic assistance and visa-free access to the US uh, for the Marshall Islands, Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia in exchange for exclusive military access to their territories. But the US hasn't passed uh, the funding packages it agreed to last year. Now, Heine says... Uh, Congress needs to understand that the funds did not come because of the generosity of the US government and its citizens, but rather because of hard negotiations between the parties. Mm, It is a story we'll keep our our watch on. Uh, Finally, Taiwan. Uh, Interesting enough, they're sending a special envoy to uh, Tuvalu. Yeah, so this comes after Fileti Tio was named as Tuvalu's new prime minister on Monday. Uh, Tuvalu uh, being one of Taiwan's few remaining allies in the Pacific. Uh, Taiwan's ambassador to to, to Tuvalu uh, has already told AFP after the vote that he's been assured by Mr. Teo that uh, ties were rock solid, durable and everlasting. Uh, And now Taiwan News reports that uh, Taiwan's Deputy Foreign Minister Tian Chung Kuang has been sent to, to it's been sent to Tuvalu as a show of support for Teal's election. Mm. Thank you very much, uh, Mackenzie, for bringing our news wrap this morning. Really appreciate your time. No worries. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your life or home isn't. Learn what to do before, during and after disaster in a program aimed at helping you keep safe. Pacific Prepared is all things disaster preparedness for the Pacific, with a team of reporters on the ground having conversations and bringing you the stories that could help you, your family and community prepare for natural disasters. Pacific Prepared, Fridays from 9am PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. Uh, One of the voices behind the push to establish a Pacific Science Academy uh, says one of its aims is to decolonise scientific research in the region. At a meeting in RPN last October, 60 scholars agreed to set up the Pacific Academy of Sciences and Humanities, and they're hoping to make it a reality later this year. Among them is Marita Tsuai'i, Senior Research Fellow at the Punavai Marama Cook Islands Centre for Research. She tells our reporter Liam Fox that an academy would champion Pacific researchers and the science that matters to their communities. An academy is a Western construct. It's a Western system. But the way that I think that we are participating in it as Pacific Islanders, I mean, uh, the members of the establishing committee are people, researchers who live in the, in the islands. Um, it is an exercise in decolonization, you know, flipping the script of being the, the people that are studied um, and doing the research ourselves ethically, respectfully, and bringing the benefits back to our communities. 
when I hear the word science academy, I think of, you know, uh, a grand old uh, institution in Europe or the US, stone buildings, Chesterfield lounges, things like that. What is it? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it does have sort of that uh, sense of colonialism, I suppose. Um, the uh, Science Academy promotes basically the study and application of science, making sure that uh, science is, uh, is promoted for real, you know, not, not as misinformation. And also awards, you know, that whole thing of excellence and awarding scholars. Why do we need one in the Pacific? So the Pacific uh, doesn't have a facility that is independent um, that promotes uh, scholars, Pacific scholars and researchers and academics. So this will be the first time that such an institution would would be created. If it is created, is it a... A physical location? Will it be a physical place or is it more of a, a, a network? So it's intended to be both. We're looking at having it in the Pacific, possibly Samoa, but its networks would reach out to Pacific Island communities or researchers who are non-Pacific Islander who study the or research the Pacific in other countries as well, with a particular focus, of course, in New Zealand and Australia with our larger communities there. I mean, there are more Cook Islanders, for example, in New Zealand than there are in the Cook Islands, but this will be one of the ways to promote researchers in the Cook Islands as well. Where are we at with the plans to create it? Uh, you're one of the scholars who, who signed this agreement, was it, late last year, calling for it to be set up. Where are we now? Yeah, we are currently refining the academy's structure and legal form. Um, we're getting legal advice on that. We're defining membership criteria, um, who our funding, uh, who our founding members may be, um, and yeah, plan to have it launched by the end of the year, around the same time as the, you know, or October was last year was when we first talked about it. So the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Samoa looks like the perfect opportunity to do that. So that's the uh, timeline that we set for ourselves. The issue of funding, how are you going to fund uh, the Academy? The legal form that we hope to uh, have uh, will assist us in um, receiving endowments and uh, research grants and scholarships. Uh, At the moment, we are being assisted by the International Science Council, uh, Tasakawa Peace Foundation, Australian Academy of um, Science, the Royal Academy in New Zealand. So, uh, yeah, who've been integral in providing insight into how those organisations are structured and giving advice. As well as linking researchers within the Pacific to each other, it will provide a link to the wider world. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. With our connection to the International Science Council, we hope to, and also the Africa Academy of Science and Caribbean Academy of Science. I mean, we've got connections there as well that we hope to uh, foster and um, share and get together and discuss research and uh, how we can promote uh, science in our community. Perhaps it's it's early stages, but what sort of areas would you see uh, uh, the Academy focusing on? 
Yeah, the Samoa meeting, uh, there was an, an intention to uh, focus on everything, so not just science, like hard science or uh, Western science, I suppose, but the humanities, arts, social science. There was a suggestion for logic, logical science, but yeah, we'll see. Um, also, technology and innovation is also something. It's something we're still discussing, but integral to the Pacific, of course, is indigenous knowledge uh, systems. So we have particularly emphasised as Pacific researchers that this is a part of our academy. Our indigenous knowledge systems are really important to us and we want to see these promoted. Um, and the holders and practitioners of those systems as well um, upheld, celebrated in a way that isn't really done anywhere else. I mean, for me, I think of Polynesian, um, our Polynesian voyaging society uh, members and master navigators, you know, promoting that knowledge, yeah. I guess it would also feed into the bigger issues uh, that are affecting Pacific peoples, but that other scientists have so far taken the lead on, like climate change, climate resilience, dealing with it, getting a Pacific perspective on it, things like that. Yes, that's right. I mean, we we want to be the top independent advice forum and inform regional and international policy on these things, climate change, um, nuclear discharge or seabed minerals or seabed mining. Yeah, I hope that this is this is going to uplift those our voices on that. Be, be, just be independent on um, on those kind of things. Provide independent researchers. Collaborate. And that is Marita Tuari'i from Te Punavai Marama Cook Island Centre for research speaking to Liam Fox. A well-being and suicide prevention organisation, Haka for Life, is set to raise awareness about mental health and the importance of the Tiriti or Treaty of Waitangi at this Saturday's Mardi Gras Parade in Sydney. Thousands of people will come together to celebrate queer communities, with about 200 colourful floats expected to fill the streets. Māori, Aboriginal and Pacific Island participants will wave the black, white and red Māori flag to criticise the New Zealand government for seeking to make changes to the treaty. The group's founder and the float's organiser, Leon Rudi, told Dubravka Volodia more about it. Our plans for Saturday are to give Mardi Gras an absolute shake-up and to bring culture to Mardi Gras 2024. Um, our theme for this year is Toy Tu Te Tiriti. And what you're going to see is that you're going to see the cab of our float with the signage saying Toi Tu Te Tiriti, which means honour the treaty, which is a message to the New Zealand Coalition Government, who is currently attacking our rights as Indigenous Māori in New Zealand. And our inclusion this year, our theme, is really to send a message to use uh, Māori Gras in a platform with the overall theme of our future and the opportunity for Māori Gras giving us an opportunity inside of that to to declare something that is aligned to our future. So you're going to see bright lights that are flashy. We have the only live uh, didgeridoo player as well because uh, it's Hucka for Life and our Darrington Indigenous dancers. So we always uh, have our First Nations brothers and sisters with us. So we'll have uh, corroboree and didgeridoo and we're going to have Hucka with flashy lights. You'll definitely see us with our Tinoranga Tiratanga flags, which is a uh, symbolism of um, self-determination in, in our Māori culture, their red, black and white flags. So we're sporting about 
20 of those. We're going to have some Aboriginal flags. We've got our Pacifica brothers uh, that are joining us as well, as we do every year. We've always had our Pacifica brothers and sisters at different times join us as a part of our Mardi Gras float. One of the great things about our inclusion in Mardi Gras is that, you know, we're there to bring a presence of Indigenous culture, obviously of, of the Māori culture and the Indigenous culture of Australia. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to be inclusive and, and for us to educate and for us to teach people about uh, Indigenous cultures because, you know, as, as much as we have the oldest culture uh, in the world here in Australia, often a lot of people don't know a lot about it. So it's a great opportunity for us to be able to, you know, teach them the right protocols, to be able to share stories, and for them to be able to then go away and be able to tell their own stories about their experience, uh, firstly and most importantly with the culture of this land, and then to share their experience about our Māori culture as well. As you've said, you will be raising awareness about the treaty. The Māori Health Authority is also at risk of being dismantled. Uh, What's your view on that? That's the whole uh, reason why we're so staunch with, uh, you know, which means honour the treaty. It's a direct message to the New Zealand Coalition government to say, stop playing games, stop trying to confuse people, stop trying to make out you're our friends when you're trying to take away our rights and diminish who we are by not only uh, redefining and renaming this health authority, but also instructing government departments to first use English as as the name to be able to describe those government departments, which they're talking about. Uh, taxpayer money back in New Zealand and wanting to save money. They're reducing the, the smoking um, you know, structures that are in place in New Zealand that are putting more New Zealanders at risk. They're wasting money in relation to um, you know, the changing of government departments back in the English names first. I mean, there's better things that they could be spending their money on and there's greater ways to be able to show that you support the Indigenous cultures. Māori culture and, and te reo Māori is the first language of New Zealand um, you're not a friend of ours if you're trying to change it around the other way and then say that this is in the best interest of, you know, of the country themselves. Um, without consulting Māori as they uh, have to, uh, according to the tiriti of Waitangi. Now, you are a well-being and suicide prevention organisation. How important is raising mental health awareness, particularly among the LGBTQI plus communities? It's critically important because, sadly, our LGBTIQA plus or Takatapui uh, community suffer the highest rates of suicide. You know, there's um, you know, incredibly sad rates that exist there. And for us, our presence and, and our opportunity to be able to connect live with the crowd there at um, Mardi Gras, first and foremost, and, and also online, is to always share a message about hope and, and of encouragement for us. You know, a big part of what I do is I always have people to try and interrupt uh, the internal dialogue that we we can so often um, be caught up in and that negative loop that can really, really diminish us. It's important that we have the ability to come out and talk and express ourselves and then make sure that we connect to our support structures. The support structures that we have around us, uh, as in uh, what I say is support structures, it's people and support services that you can trust, that you can open up to, is so important for this community. It is so sad to think that today they are still so stigmatised and ostracised and judged inside of our communities. I've seen it myself this year with our promotion of uh, Mardi Gras for Haka for Life and just uh, the online hate and the rhetoric that comes out. I'm a heterosexual man that's standing for this community and standing with this community, you know, and the, the vile comments that have been directed at me 
it's just an indicator. You know, I'd hate to imagine what it's like to, to live with that all day, every day. And so it's important for us, regardless of the haters out there, to be able to stand in love, to be able to stand in power, and to be able to demonstrate to this community that there are people that love them and that stand with them and stand for them. What role does culture play and where can people see culturally appropriate help? Culture plays the role of medicine you know, for, for all of us and, and any indigenous cultures. Uh, I believe that culture is medicine and, and that's the role that it has to play. And that is Leon Ruri from Hakka for Life talking to Dubravka Volodia. Now, if you are in need of help in regards to the topic of your mental health, well-being and suicide, please check your local helpline in your country. But for Fiji's Lifeline, you can call 132454. Solomon Islands, 132. And in Australia, 131114. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Time to take a look at one of our main stories today. Tuvalu's new government, they've signaled it will seek revisions to a landmark treaty signed with the Australian government, as our reporter Marion Farr explains. Both countries still need to pass uh, legislation to give force to this agreement. Um, it looks like that, that that will happen, but it might not be as straightforward as Australia potentially hoped. And that is our reporter, Marion Farr. Uh, head to our abc.net.au website forward slash Pacific. Uh, tomorrow, it's your sports show with Richard Hewitt. Uh, but I'll be back again at 6am PNG next week. Up next is your news. And coming up after that, it's Nisha Daily. Until next time, enjoy your weekend. I'll see you next week. I'm Aggie Thabal and this is Pacific Beat.